This is an ABC podcast. I was having a cup of tea the other day with a feisty octogenarian. She was holding forth about what a weird world it is. Well, no argument there. She was quite fired up about how unstable and dangerous it is at the moment. It certainly wasn't like that back in the 1950s, she reassured me. I've learnt from long experience that when talking with one's mother, sometimes it's better to just be quiet and listen. Hello, Anthony Fennell here. But it did cross my mind that things in the 50s weren't quite the way she remembered. It was a peaceful and golden time, but only if you ignored the fact that much of mainland Europe was still pulling itself together after World War II, the Cold War was underway, there was fighting on the Korean Peninsula, the Chinese Communist Party was laying waste to large swathes of the country's industry and culture, tensions in the Middle East were rising, McCarthyism was in vogue, and post-colonial independence movements were making their presence felt right across the globe. I think you get the point. Welcome to Future Tense, by the way. We humans seem to have a tendency to be extremely glum about the present and the future, while looking back on the past through rose-coloured glasses. Why that's the case is the subject of today's show, and how that affects our ability to prepare and plan for the challenges of tomorrow. My name's Carter Phipps. I'm the author of Evolutionaries and the managing director of the Institute for Cultural Evolution. It seems almost part of the human condition in some way, and certainly part of the modern human condition is pessimism that seems resistant to even good and positive data sometimes. There is a doom and gloom. There's a kind of feeling that no matter even, no matter what good news we're seeing, that things are bad and they're going to get worse. And and whether it's environmental issues or social justice issues or inequality or or whatever it is, there just seems to be a kind of entrenched pessimism that seems to be hard to get rid of. Ten years ago, I wrote a book which I entitled Our Final Century? My publishers cut out the question mark. The American publishers changed the title to Our Final Hour. Americans like instant gratification and the reverse. <laughs> and, you know, we can be optimists and still acknowledge real problems in the world, but people seem to lean toward a kind of pessimism that's very entrenched. Why do you think that is? Well, I, again, I, I do think there's something, you know, obviously we've, we've come out of a period where we have this huge financial, this global financial crisis, and there's no doubt that that's affected the way that people see the world. And even though the economies around the world are expanding and getting better and things are arguably much, much better over the last years, I think there's still that lingering sense that we had this sort of near economic near-death experience and people, you know, frightened from that experience. So I think that plays a role, but I do think it's something deeper, really, my whole life, you know, I'm 50 years old, and I think my whole life, there's been a strong subcultures in this country, in America, but certainly around the world that have sort of had this feeling that we need to go back to some, you know, romantic 
past, some imagined past that they think was better than this kind of modern industrial world and this sense that things are really going in a fundamentally wrong direction and they're really pessimistic about the future and there's almost a sense that the past was better. And I, I think that's a real a false sense of, of how we think about history. I don't think there's that's that's accurate, but I think it seems to be something in the modern human condition that just sees of that wants to look at the world and and see this deep pessimism. And I think the reality of climate issues and climate change and the concern about that has only heightened that sense that, you know, God, I have friends who say maybe it's really, it's all over for the human condition. You know, it's all over. We have to mourn the earth. You know, that's the main job now. And I'm just like, really? Is, is it gotten that bad? Are we at that point? I don't think so. I don't even think we're, we're at that point at all. I don't think that's what the data, that's what we look out of the world. I don't think that's what it's telling us at all, but that's where some people are at. Now, America is particularly interesting in this regard because, despite their success, they have a long history of repeated bouts of future-focused pessimism. Doom is a cyclical thing in the US. Historians have even given it a name. They call it American declinism. Yeah, I think as you have these, as a country like America that's been so successful over time and been the dominant, the, the big person on the block, sort of, to, so to speak, and has been so successful, there's something kind of takes on uh, a, a sort of cultural feeling that it's time for us to get our comeuppance, you know, that there's going to be a decline, that we've, we've gone forward, we've been too dominant for too long, and, the, you know, these whole kind of subcultures are built around the idea that that needs to change. I see it my... My wife is English, and I see that that sense of the, the, the English have this sense because they had the empire at once, you know, and there's that sense that once we had it so good and now it's all downhill from here. And I think as a global culture, it's easy to, especially as a global, the global Western culture, it's easy to get a sense of that. Now, I don't think you find that if you go to India today or you go to China today, I don't think they're talking about declinism in those countries which are so up and coming. But I think for countries that have been on this sort of late modernism that have been through this developmental uh, process economically over the last 100 or 200 years, at a certain point in that process, it's almost a natural process. You get this sense of maybe we're all on the decline. Maybe all the environmental, all, all the, the social issues, environmental issues start to take over as the major source of concern. And there, there becomes a sense of decline in the culture. And I think it's important we combat that. Carter Phipps. people, the new year is cause for celebration, but for some, this year is cause for concern. Concern that we've only got a year left on the planet. You've probably heard this, that according <laughs> for to... For Harvard psychologist Stephen Pinker, the nature of today's news media has also played a role in shaping our pessimistic attitudes towards the future. Journalism is driven by events. Events are usually things that go wrong. It's very easy for something bad to happen very quickly, a terrorist attack, an explosion, an epidemic, a famine. But things going right tend to build up over time, and they often tend to be things that don't happen. A country that feeds itself, a country that's at peace, a city that is not attacked by terrorists. And since the news doesn't cover what does not happen, nor does it tend to cover gradual changes, people are actually ignorant of these positive indicators. They can remember the terrible events, and that's what shapes their view of the world. There's a, a, an interaction between the nature of journalism and the nature of cognition that people tend to judge risk and probability by how easily they can recall examples. 
called the availability heuristic, discovered by Amos Tversky and Daniel Kahneman. And since what the news gives us is uh, available events, images, narratives, anecdotes, it naturally feeds our cognitive biases and leaves people with a much more pessimistic impression of the world than reality. You're not saying, though, that journalism shouldn't focus on some of the difficulties and problems that we're focused that we're experiencing. No, no, it's a you? common. No, it's a common misconception of journalists to even ask that question. What I'm saying is that the news should be more like the sports page. It reports when the team wins and it reports when the team loses. If the sports page has only reported losing streaks, I would say that's a problem. And then if the editor of the sports page says, oh, so are you saying that we should only report when the team wins? I'd say, no, no, you're missing the point. You should report whatever happens. Similarly, in the realm of news, people would have a more accurate picture of the world if they had something more like a dashboard of indicators of the state of the world. Every year, what are the number of war deaths that year? What are the number of homicides? What are the number of democracies? What is the rate of CO2 emissions? Not just when things go south, but uh, whichever way they go. Financial pages, too, report the stock market, the commodities market, the currency exchanges every day, up, down, or the same. But it's not the way the news works. The news only reports the dramatic events, which tend to be bad events. This tendency towards thinking about doom, this this pessimistic uh, style of thinking, this is not new, though, is it? This has been going on for quite some time. That's right. Certainly back to the Hebrew prophets. And there is kind of a market for for attention and for gravitas and for seriousness that if you do report on uh, what's going wrong, that conveys the impression of being serious and helpful and any kind of report of the positive seems like some kind of of scheme, some kind of attempt to to sell you something. So there is definitely, there is, in addition to the cognitive bias that leans toward the negative because of the nature of news, there's also an ethic that bad news is more morally serious. I've seen you labelled as one of the new optimists, and that term isn't necessarily used as a a positive. Your thoughts on that labelling? Yeah, it's not something that uh, I or or Hans Rosling or uh, the other people that receive the label would uh, assent to. It's like saying if the sports pages report when the team wins, then they're optimists. Well, no, they're not optimists. They're just reporting the reality. The team doesn't always lose. Likewise, the world doesn't always get worse. And if you report data that extreme poverty is falling, that deaths in war have gone down over the decades, that isn't being optimistic. That's just reporting facts. So it's a misconception coming from, I think, the the rather warped idea that the only serious journalism and the only serious intellectual commentary is one that points to what can go wrong and with forebodings of doom. It's a bias that I and the others are trying to overcome. So it's not putting a positive spin on things. It's not seeing the glasses half full. It's not seeing the world through rose-colored glasses. It's seeing the world accurately. It's correcting biases. And the reality is that many indicators have improved. Now, not all of them, and not always, and not everywhere. That couldn't possibly be true. That would be a miracle. But many of them are much more positive than people realize simply because they're ignorant of these basic facts. Carter Phipps, you've written about uh, the need to break free from what you call the spell of solidity. Just explain that idea to us. The spell of solidity is this idea. It's very entrenched in the way we think about culture and the way we think about history. It's the idea that we live in a a kind of a static, 
fixed, unchanging world. And when we look out at the future and we look at the past, we tend to think of the way things are today, and then we project that out into the future. It's the way our brain works. You know, we project that out to the future, and we project that into the past. And so it really distorts the way we see the future, and it distorts the way we see the past. And I think breaking that spell of solidity is so important because if you really look at history and you have a rich sense of history, you see in some respects how far we've come, how economically, socially, I mean, by almost any metric over the last 100 or 200 years, there's been a tremendous sense of development. Obviously, we can see that in technology, but in in the way we live, I, I was looking at a chart the other day, was looked at infant mortality rates over the last 50, 60, 100 years, just incredible. I mean, we are wealthier today than we've been in, ever been in history. We are healthier today than we've ever been in history. Extreme poverty is decreasing at an increasing rate. I mean, so many trends are improving, and yet we have this sense that things aren't changing, that things aren't positive. And when we lose that sense that the future is going to be better than the past, that we can have an impact a positive impact on the future. When we lose that sense, then we start reaching for populist leaders or messianic ideas. We start reaching for things that are unhealthy about how maybe we need to overturn the table completely and start over. The way I put it, we start reaching for revolution instead of evolution. And what we really need is to continue this evolutionary process. We have real problems. We need to face those and continue to develop, but we don't need to overturn everything to do it. History often works the way journalism works, in focusing on discrete catastrophes rather than gradual trends. There are books about a particular war, a particular revolution, a particular famine, but also many intellectuals, social critics, commentators, op-ed writers see their role as critics of institutions, the establishment, the status quo. And that means that they're resistant to the idea that anything about the status quo could have gone right. It seems to undermine their franchise to be uh, social critics, and it tends to cast their lot with the people they're attacking, such as uh, people in government, people in industry, people in uh, government bureaucracies, the people who are kind of in charge of getting the society to run. Social critics tend to set themselves in opposition to the people who are running day-to-day life. And this is Future Tense on RN, exploring the world around us, looking for the pathways ahead and signposting the future. I'm Anthony Fennell. My handle on Twitter is at Anthony J Fennell if you want to send us a comment or even a story idea. Today, future doom and the rose-coloured past. The idea of Homo prospectus is that what makes us unique, what sets us apart, what defines our species, is our ability to think about the future. This is Roy Baumeister. I'm a professor of psychology at the University of Queensland. More and more evidence continues to come out that, that most animals live in the here and now. They can't project very far into the future. They have a difficult time even imagining that they will feel differently than they do now. Whereas uh, it's sort of central to what we do. We take responsibility for things we did long ago, project far in the future, adjust our present behavior based on what we expect to happen or what we want to happen months, even years ahead of time. We envision multiple different possible scenarios. So yes, it's a remarkable step forward in evolution in the human mind to be able to deal with the future in this way. 
I think it's natural that the human mind orients automatically toward the negative. You can see why that was useful, because if you can see, well, what we're doing now is going to lead to disaster. I should stop doing it before, <laughs> before I bring on a disaster. And so evolution blessed us with this capacity to think into the future. So a bias in favour of pessimism might have been useful in the past from an evolutionary perspective. But when there's evidence that gives grounds for optimism, why do we often choose not to believe it? My take on it is that it's just an innate property of the mind and one of the most basic psychological principles to respond to bad things more strongly than good things. It's familiar in some contexts, like you know, with economics, that you're more upset about losing $50 than you're happy about gaining $50. And so loss aversion and uh, forming impressions, you learn something bad about a person that carries more weight than, than something good about the person. But it's much more general than that, that psychologically, wherever we can sort of equate good things and bad things, the bad things have stronger impact. And reduce it to simple terms, my take is death only has to win once, life has to win every day. So avoiding disaster was the first job, and that's it's one thing that our minds and our ability to project into the future evolved for. So our expectations of the future have an important impact on our decision-making and how we prepare. But here's a curious thing. When you ask people, what are the odds that you will get a promotion at work or get fired from work or have a wonderful marriage or get a divorce or have a gifted child? When people are making all these predictions, they tend to be very optimistic. They think good things are more likely to happen to them than to the average person. Bad things are less likely to happen. And this is replicated in many different contexts. And yet, when we made people think about the future and then they had to like place bets or decide on investments or decide whether to trust someone, they became extra cautious. So how could we reconcile this? If you're optimistic, you should be more willing to take chances, but they were less willing to take chances. What we came to think is that both points are valid, that when you think about the future, there are two steps. The first is to envision what you would like to happen. So that's very positive. How would I like to end up? And then the second is, well, how do I get there? Then you think of all the things that can go wrong. So if you catch people right when they first think about the future, the first thought is indeed positive, optimistic, confident, uh, upbeat. But then you start to think, well, how do I make that happen? And then you realize the, the path is fraught with uh, pitfalls. They become uh, much less optimistic and certainly more realistic, if not more negative. So in dealing with that, then getting people to strategize when they start to think about those different scenarios could possibly be important. Yes, yes. Just imagine good, good outcomes isn't enough. Uh, you practically want to think about how, how to get there. There's a famous study had students imagine getting a top mark on an exam. And uh, some of them imagined studying and practicing and going and taking the test and writing down the answers carefully. Others imagined that the test was already finished and they were just going down and looking up where the grades were posted and saw that they, they got a top mark and were all happy about it. Well, that, that second one, imagining the good outcome, that didn't do any good. They didn't get any better grades. But the ones who imagined themselves working toward it by uh, practicing, they did actually get higher scores. It's not enough just to think, oh, something wonderful could happen <laughs> and envision it. To get there, you have to analyze the process and, and prepare yourself to take the steps that will bring it about.
think people have been looking back on the past with rose-colored glasses as long as there have been people. Dr. Art Markman, a professor of psychology and marketing at the University of Texas at Austin. Those were the days, my friend, we thought they'd never end. We'd sing and, and there really are a couple of big reasons for this. One of them is that when you look back on the past, you know how the story came out. So in the forward direction, your life was pretty chaotic. If you, if you talk to most kids, for example, in high school, they're worried about their education. They're worried about getting a job in the future. They're worried about fitting in. When you look back on that same period from a vantage point 20 years in the future, you know how the story came out. And so all of those concerns about how it was going to work out are no longer an issue because you can pick out the storyline. And so it's much easier to understand your life story when you look back on it than it is to project it in the forward direction. So that's one piece of it. Another piece of it, though, is that when you're thinking about the present and the near future, you tend to focus tactically on all of the stuff that needs to get done. And all of that work that needs to happen that work is frustrating. It, it takes effort. You have to plan for it. Whereas when you're looking back on it, you're not thinking about all of the specifics of your life. You're not thinking about having to set the alarm or finish your homework. You're just thinking about the more abstract pieces of it and how nice it was to have the, the freedom that, that you had when you were younger or how good the food tasted. And, and you're not as concerned about having to, have to go to the store to buy that food. So those factors, I think, really affect your ability to look on the past as a simpler, easier, and more joyous time. And your ability to make comparisons as you get older is also an issue that you've identified, isn't it? You know, one of the things that happens as you get older is that is that you know all of the problems that can arise. You, you can see all of the, the all of the things that could possibly have gone wrong, and so you have a little bit more perspective. You can be a little bit more thankful about how things turned out, and you can also recognize you have some perspective to understand what really is important. There was an ad campaign that was run by the LGBT community a couple of years ago called It Gets Better. And it was aimed at kids who thought, well, how I feel in high school, those monumental feelings are all that there is. And it's not that there aren't difficulties for everyone as they get older. It's that they're able to put those difficulties into much better perspective. They're able to recognize what really is a significant problem and which things feel like more of a problem than they actually are. So we tend to romanticise the past and we tend to exaggerate or have a greater level of fear about the future and the present than we should. What, what does that kind of attitude, though, do to our sense of well-being? And what are the, the social implications of that way of thinking? So there's several potential problems with romanticising the past too much. For one thing, there's nothing you can do about the past. The past is already finished. But the actions that you take now are ones that can have a profound impact on your future. And so to the extent that you believe that there isn't much that you can do to improve the future, you're not going to put in the effort 
to try to make the future better than it could be. And a lot of life is really a self-fulfilling prophecy. If you believe you can do something, then you put in the effort. And even if you don't achieve exactly what you intended to, you achieve a lot more than you would have if you hadn't tried. There's a bumper sticker that says something like, whether you believe you can or you can't, you're right. And I think that there is a danger in believing that the future is something that you're not going to be able to have as much of an impact on as you'd like to. So I, I think that you, you really want to approach the future with a certain degree of hope. You know, one of the things that you can do is to actually project yourself back into your life. And instead of thinking about it from a distance, really try to picture what your daily life was like when you were a high school student or, or, or you know, 20 years ago. And, and remember all of the things that you struggled with and recognize that those struggles are really not that much different than the struggles that you face now in your life. And that it's that same level of effort, that same level of desire to create a better future that will make that happen in the coming years. What role does social media play in influencing the way we think? I think that one of the things that social media promotes is a tendency for what's called social comparison. And what we know about social comparison is that if you make what's called an upward social comparison, so you compare yourself to someone who's better off than you are, then it makes you feel bad about your current circumstance, no matter how wonderful your current circumstance is. So the fact that most people have big flat screen televisions in their house with surround sound and that they have an abundance of food, and of course this isn't everybody, but nonetheless, if you look at social media, there's always someone out there who's got something more than you've got, a newer car, a nicer watch, a bigger house. And it's easy to look at those things and feel dissatisfied with what you don't have rather than satisfied with what you do. You know, there's, there's actually data showing that people who have the largest house in a neighborhood full of smaller houses, while realtors will tell them that that's not the best way to maximize the value of their home, they're actually happier overall because every other house they see is smaller than their own. And look, just finally, at a very personal level, what are some of the things that people can do to make sure that their perceptions of the future and the past are actually healthy and working for them? Yeah, I you know, I think there's several things to do. I mean, one is really to avoid making social comparisons to other people. I think the best social comparisons you can make are to compare your past self to your present self and to really look at how far you've come in various dimensions, the skills that you have, the responsibilities that you have, the family that you have, and to compare yourself specifically in the past and in the future. I think it's also important to really project yourself to a specific day or time in the past if you can find an old diary that reminds you of some of the specific things that, that you did to remind yourself that every day of your life had some joy in it, but it also had some things that were annoying. And so it, there was no time that was particularly carefree. I think that's important. And then I think, you know, it's, it's important to really have hope 
for the future. I think all of us should put ourselves in a situation in which we try to create a sense of agency, a sense that we can actually affect the future with our actions as individuals and also collectively to reach out to other people and find ways. If, if we think that there are problems in the world, let's get together with people and actually try to build a plan to solve them. It, it is that collective cooperative action that has enabled humans to really dominate planet Earth. But it's also that collective action that gives us one of the greatest feelings of not just connectedness, but real satisfaction. The best way to feel satisfied with life is to feel like you're part of a community that's trying to achieve a goal. And, and that's something that can actually make the present a deeply wonderful place to be. And that's Future Tense for another week. Our guests today were Art Markman from the University of Texas, Austin, Roy Baumeister from the University of Queensland, Stephen Pinker at Harvard, and Carter Phipps from the Institute for Cultural Evolution. Your producer was the always optimistic Karen Savanovitz. I'm the slightly pessimistic Anthony Fennell. Thanks for joining us. Until the next time, if there is one... Of course there is one. Cheers. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.